0: The views expressed by your hosts, Austin and Landon, are not necessarily the views of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Let's lean in as Austin and Landon connect with this week's Tycoons.
1: Good afternoon, Tycoons, and welcome to today's episode of Tycoons of Small Biz. I'm your host, as always, Austin Peterson, coming to you live from Tempe, Arizona, and I'm also joined by my co-host, uh, Landon Mance, coming to us from Las Vegas. So disregard the slot machine noises in the background. He truly is here and, and is going to be uh, engaged with us today. We're also very excited to have uh, Ryan Weissmuller with us today. Ryan's a partner of the show. He helps us with in a lot of different ways. We really couldn't do this show without him, and we're excited to have him in studio as a co-host as well. And then we have... Uh, Kevin Stoller, co-founder and CEO of K12 in the studio with us as well. So we're excited to have you here today, Kevin. Uh, Before we get into your story, I do want to, to just let our listeners know if this is the first time you're listening to our program, our program is called Tycoons of Small Biz. The reason it's called Tycoons of Small Biz is we believe that there really are tycoons in small business throughout our country that are truly the backbone of the American economy. It's an old time word that doesn't get used a whole lot today but we truly do believe that, uh, that there are tycoons out there like yourself who are propping up you know, our economy throughout the, throughout the world, especially after we come out of this pandemic. So we're excited to have you in today and, and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. So why don't we start on the personal side? Just tell us a little bit about your family, your background, kind of where you grew up and, uh, and how we got to, to K-12 today.
2: Yeah, for sure. Like most kids, might. My age, I'll still call myself a kid. It all starts and ends with Michael Jordan. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I grew up in Chicago area, and that was literally like my childhood was like Chicago sports, and uh, yeah, it was a lot of lot of basketball, three brothers, just uh, playing sports and uh, watching the Bulls. And then I went off to college and had this opportunity to actually do a documentary about Michael Jordan. Oh wow! So, but that was actually my first like entrepreneurial opportunity. So, and uh, in college, I met my wife, so we've been married for 20 years. We have uh, we have three kids now, and uh, we moved out to Scottsdale about four years ago. All
1: right. Well, welcome to the Valley of the Sun. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to lie to you, my heart hurt a little bit when you talked about Chicago and Michael Jordan. I, I was I,
2: wondering <laughs> about that, you know, like...
1: <laughs> I grew up outside of Salt Lake City, Utah. And so, you know, Carl Malone, John Stockton, Brian Russell... They would have had at least one championship, if not two, if it weren't for Michael Jordan.
2: So a story on that: one of my best friends is a high school teacher, and he had this debate on who's the greatest of all time. And you know, he teaches in Ohio, so they're all saying LeBron, LeBron, <laughs> LeBron. And uh, and he's like, "What are you talking about? You guys don't know anything about Michael Jordan." <laughs> and one of the kids, kids goes, "He goes, it's not, it's it's not even a good comparison when Michael Jordan played." all the other players had full-time jobs and they were just <laughs> playing on the side. <laughs> and so my friend, he goes, he had to explain that Carmeloon was not really a male <laughs>
1: Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, Carl Magal was really not a mailman. Wow. Yeah, it, it is is—it is interesting. So my oldest is 21 years old, and it's amazing to me the things that they are not aware of, right? My son's actually studying sports journalism at Arizona State in the Cronkite School. And so he he knows a little bit more about sports history than maybe some his age, right? But you're right. It's all about LeBron now, or even Kobe was considered like an older LeBron, so to speak, and so it, it's interesting to to watch. I mean, my personal story with him is when he is getting ready to apply for college, he's looking at different s- schools, and he wanted to study sports journalism. And I said, "Well, you know, what about the the Cronkite School? I mean, the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism is right here at Arizona State." He looked at me dead in the face, and he said, "Who's Walter Cronkite?" <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, "Oh man, this is this is terrible." So yeah, it, it is. It's completely generational, and, and funny that uh, you know Michael Jordan's viewed as a as an old man. I guess he is almost. He's getting close to sixty now. He's got to be mid fifties at least.
3: Yeah. yeah. Well, Kevin, you know one of the I think one of the great things I love about tycoons and certainly what Austin Landon and I get to do is is work with all these different entrepreneurs doing things that we really didn't know were out there necessarily. Things you don't think about every day. So. Tell us a little bit about how how did you get involved in K twelve? Where did the ideas come from? A little bit on how the companies evolved, and we certainly want to talk more about you know the journey these last couple of years with all the disruption we've had. But take us back to the beginning.
2: Yeah, for sure. So I knew I wanted to start a business. I kind of had it in me. I think back from kind of college, it was one of the things that I that you know I was driving towards. But I never felt I had a good idea. So I kind of went more the traditional path. Worked for a couple of different Fortune five hundred companies, and then just kind of at some point looked up and I looked at the people that were 10 years ahead of me and I'm like I don't think that's what I want to do with my life and so I started trying to figure out all right what how can I do this I don't have the I don't have an idea yet and I was really into reading a lot of different things um the millionaire mind was one of the ones that was a big influence for Mm -hmm. me of just kind of looking at kind of all those dirty industries you know they they looked at all all the statistics and the people that had you know a higher net worth it was you know businesses that you would never think of and um, and at the time I got recruited into this small company that was selling high density storage basically shelving on wheels so I'm like okay that seems like one of those (laughs) dirty industries where you know like you just wouldn't think that it was there and um, and just kind of fell into a really good spot in that there were three people in that office that were all in the in their mid to late 60s and got in there and had an opportunity to learn from them but literally within a year Two of them retired. One of them actually passed away. So I was sitting there just like, okay, well, maybe this is kind of an opportunity. And it, it was a fun industry because we got into like behind the scenes things and everything from art museums to the Football Hall of Fame to police stations for like evidence storage. It was just really kind of cool that different types of things that we got exposure into. So I recruited in one of my friends who worked from an, from another company and said, let's learn how to do this. We can do this and then we'll just break off on our own. And that's kind of that was the original plan. So we worked there for a couple of years and then when we went to break off on our own, um, we had a 12-month non-compete. We're like, well, what are we gonna do for 12 months? And his His uncle owned a school furniture business in Northeast Ohio. And we were at the time we were in central Ohio and he's like, come, he's like, just come sell for us. So that was, that's how I got into school furniture, (laughs) total accident. And, um, you know, like as I was trying to learn the furniture market, um, there was actually the big conference for the year was actually out here in Phoenix, went to it. And I walked around the Phoenix convention center and looked at all the school furniture and it was all exactly the same. It was like the most commoditized business. Like, like the discussions were like the gauge of steel and the type of glide on the bottom of it, uh, of each chair. And I'm like, this is horrible. This is all going online. And at that point, I'm like, okay, this was a fun challenge. This is kind of a dirty business that maybe we can we can look to see, like, how how do we revolutionize this industry?
1: Yeah, it's, fu- it's funny you talk about, you know, The Millionaire millionaire Next Door, The Millionaire Mind, that, you know, that whole book series. And, you know, Landon and I, our day jobs is is wealth management, financial planning, f- specifically for business owners, right? And, and you mentioned, you know, it's always that everybody thinks about technology businesses or, you know, something that's high tech or new or, you know, has to be flashy. But the reality is, and I'm pretty sure this is the same for Landon too, but the most- high net worth clients that I have all own or owned businesses that are pretty mundane, right? Residential remodeling, mattress distribution and and manufacturing, restaurant equipment repair services. Like those are the, those are my clients who make the most money and have the most net worth and businesses that are worth the most. And it's just these kind of dirty, like you say, or mundane businesses.
2: It doesn't mean that's where I want to be. (laughs) (laughs) You
1: you don't want to come home from uh, work with, you know, dirt under your fingernails. No, I mean,
2: it's definitely, yeah. And, you know, and I've been fortunate to be around a bunch of other business owners too. And it is, I mean, there's, you know, that's, what's kind of sparked my interest in other businesses too, and trying to figure out like, yeah, they're, You know, obviously, like technology and some of these other things that have a much higher rate of return. And, you know, you know, when you sell it, it's not looking at, you know, three to five times EBITDA. You're looking at much higher return. So there's still the interest and things that I dabble in to try to try to play in those games, too. But at the end of the day, like what we're doing, I always say I'm kind of like a mission-based entrepreneur we're making an impact on schools like we are the ones that are coming in and saying, hey, the way schools have looked for the last 120 years is not the way they need to be. And, you know, there's a statistic out there that's been floating around for like three or four years that 85 percent of current kindergartners are going to work in jobs that don't exist today. Yeah. So the fact that still a good 70, 80 percent of classrooms around the country still look like they have for the last 120 years, that's that's really kind of my drive and our whole team is focused on.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's really cool to watch and see, you know, because there's the curriculum side of things, which we could talk all day long about how that needs to change and kids need to come out of school learning different schools and things. But at the same time, I don't think many people think about the impact that the furniture that these kids are sitting on and learning in and the other peripherals that they have, how much of an impact that has on their education.
2: Yeah, we talk about it, its culture. I mean, it, it really is, it's, it's the culture. You can have, you know, a great school principal come in and, and talk about and have the best new curriculum that's gonna be innovative and really prepare students. But then if you send your teacher back into the classroom that they've been in for 15 or 20 years, set up the same way, it is almost impossible to change
3: that culture without changing that space. Yeah. Agreed. So, so how do you manage that though, Kevin, because you, you brought it up. I mean, education is one of those spaces so rooted in tradition. They don't necessarily just want to come overhaul their classrooms tomorrow. So I guess, how did you originally break into that? And you've clearly had a good growth, you know, story as well. You, you've, you're on to something. So what was the key to unlocking that, that openness to consider some new ideas in the classroom? Yeah. The story that I come back to is that, um, there was a new kind of,
2: line of products that came on based on research. And, you know, at first, everyone in our industry was like, what is that? I don't get it. Like, how does that work? It has wheels and it swivels. <laughs> and like, what, what is this? Like, we can't do this. Kids can't move in, in school. And um, so we started doing a lot of just pilot classrooms within schools. And the one to me that just clearly stood out is that there was a school we work with that we did four classrooms as pilots using kind of this more innovative, flexible configurable type of furniture put it in there and i came back like six weeks later and you literally from the second you walked in the room you could feel the buzz coming down from that end of the hallway to the point where it's like you almost get like gravitate there and you're like what is going on over there that's where i want to be and that was like really a huge turning point for us is you just saw it like oh it's like the kids are just so much more engaged and doing that and it it just changed the entire perspective versus, you know, you think about kind of the way we grew up where you had kind of straight rows and the teacher was up front and the board's up front and it's a very much of, of like teach me mm-hmm. type of thing and now we're giving more of that ownership, that agency to the student where they can actually kind of decide how they learn best and how they want to engage and for that, that was that was the game changer. That was like we literally changed the entire company. To focus to how do we create better learning environments and, and really drove everything. We wrote a book about it. We mm-hmm. started doing a lot more com- more uh, workshops at conferences, started a podcast, and really started to focus. How do we get these change makers within education that do feel like they're stuck? How do we support them? Because
3: they're the ones that are going to
2: drive this change.
3: So is that the moment you point to? When I always love to ask this question of entrepreneurs: of when when you actually knew you were onto something? Is yeah. that the point yeah. where the light bulb that was went literally on? the said, time okay. where we went from ch- from change from selling stuff to actually making
2: a difference. Wow! And that was that was the moment where like everything happened. We're like, okay, now we actually have a mission. It's not just about how much can we sell. Uh, like, what's our revenue? Uh, to the point now, like our team is our focus is we want to impact ten million students' learning environments. And we track it like every single week on our scorecard. That's the first number on the top of our scorecard of how many students are we impacting.
4: I'm really f- fascinated with what you were just kind of describing. And I wanted to just ask you if you'll just take it one step further. So the way that you explain that, talking about the buzz coming from that classroom, I mean, I, it's almost like I could like feel myself like there. But I want to like, you know, w- when I when I come around the corner and I'm looking through the glass window, into that classroom, what, what am I seeing that's causing that reaction from the kids? What, what's the, the placement and the structure and just, just walk us through that so that we can kind of get a visual.
2: Yeah. So it, there's really kind of two predominant ones that we're seeing right now. One where we call it kind of the ultimate flexibility. It's just the idea of, and this is typically in kind of the higher grades, like six through 12, where there may be a a seat that is, that has storage underneath so they can put their books or their backpack underneath. And then there's a work surface that is kind of adjustable on that, but they can literally take that one chair that has kind of the work surface and they can move that around. So a teacher can start out at the beginning of the class period and maybe they'll start in like a U shaped discussion mode and they'll be like, okay, this is what we're going to talk about today. Get some feedback. And then they'll be like, okay, break into your group. And they'll break into a group of, you know, four to five students. They'll do work on things. The teacher is going to be walking through the classroom and kind of interacting, asking questions, maybe about halfway through the period. The teacher will kind of group that will ask some more questions and try to get their attention. But then the students actually start now presenting to the other groups and then within seconds when when it gets towards the end they might come back into more of like a discussion but it's the whole idea of that you don't just have one mode of learning all the time everyone changes and there's a book called um the end of average which is which has been a really powerful thing within education it, and they looked at at air force pilots in the 40s and um what they did was they said hey we need we need to be able to to design the cockpit here, that every pilot is gonna be able to reach whatever they need in a split second because it's literally a matter of life and death. So what they did is they had something like 3,000 pilots and they measured different parts of their bodies. By the time they took all that data and they looked at the average pilot, guess how many of their 3,000 or so fit within one standard deviation of the average? Uh, Probably a small percentage. It was zero, wow. literally zero. So if you're designing to the average, you're designing to no one. Like they were better off like just literally picking one pilot and be like, we're going to maximize it for you. But, but if you take that, that's, I mean, we're seeing it in, in medicine now where it's very much personalized medicine and the movement is happening now to personalize within education as well and from that study that's how they came with all the adjustable seats and steering wheels I mean that we see in all our cars right now was was from looking at that so every student has a predominant style but they that predominant style of learning doesn't mean they're that way all the time someone may may want to be like solitary in some but they may be really good social in others and others don't learn until they actually have to teach it to someone else so being able to to Create those environments where students can kind of be in those right environments. Because right now, the way these 70, 80% of classrooms are, it's literally if you're not a good auditory learner, that's it. That's yeah. it. That's that's your one way. So it's really cool to see the change and and this is a really long answer to what it's like right now, but COVID to me was actually one of the best things that happened to the industry because it was an industry that was like, we can't change. We can't change. We have, you know, whatever it is the teachers are going to fight it. So literally within 48 hours, um, you know, they went from this was the way we do it to now we figured out a way to do online learning and remote learning. And, and they realized we can actually change. So my challenge right now is to be like, we're, we're not going back to normal. We're not going back to the way it was before how do we now set it up so we're going back to actually serve the students the way
1: they should. Yeah, and and how do we multiply that, right? Cuz <clears throat> you'll have to tell us a little bit more about the process because, you know, when we're talking about school furniture, right? And we talked about it at the beginning. I mean, it, every I, I'm pretty sure every desk and chair that I sat in my entire high school life was the exact same chair and desk, right? And so it's all the same. There was probably one, two, three, four maximum main suppliers of these desks, right? And they all have the big contracts with all the school districts nationwide. So tell us a little bit about how you broke into that. I mean, obviously you said, you know, what you're doing is different and they've got to kind of see it to wrap their head around it and, and to do it. So how did you break in there and get them to do these test pilot classrooms.
2: Yeah. So kind of getting into like the mechanics of the industry it is very much what you're talking about. Like you had a lot of regional distributors that were that were exclusively aligned with one of the major manufacturers. So there was really no incentive for any of those changes. So when we came into it, um, you know, when we came in kind of at the tail end of, of kind of the the online push. Um, So we were kind of, there was already a few major players that were selling online, but because we kind of went in of saying like, we don't have any traditional relationships here. We're kind of the new kids on the block that we, in our first year, we sold into almost all, every state. So we were now within like 50 different states. So our manufacturer relationships were never set up to have an exclusive territory. And that was probably like the luckiest thing that we ran into because now we immediately kind of we're not just focused to a geography and saying you can't sell out of this geography. We were we were kind of had free reign in the country. So that luck kind of parlayed into us just kind of growing into different states and adding kind of outside sales representatives in the different states to kind of navigate through all of that stuff because it is, I mean there's like different state contracts and different things that you need to navigate through to play like when i moved out to arizona i would go meet with all the schools and first thing was like what contract are you on and i wasn't on one of you know like the two contracts that they can buy from from arizona so it took a year to just talk to people and you know we can do some stuff with the private schools and the charter schools but the public schools just really
1: couldn't do anything until we were on the contracts yeah and now you've been able to get those contracts. I mean, do you have to live up to union type rules as well, or every state is so different? And
2: yeah. you know, it, and it's kind of fascinating to see what goes on in different states and how they each run. And you know, in some states, we you know we do really well with charter schools, In other states we do really well with public schools or the private schools. It, it is really hit or miss. And as we continue to kind of, because our goal is we want to have full coverage of the country, and we're not quite there yet. But some states are just tough to crack. Yeah, and others are you know are easier, and you know, and then you also have the personality of the states of how you know, like we're we're not the ones that are trying to sell them kind of the traditional furniture. So if if they're still kind of stuck on it, then we're we're probably not the not the right option for
1: them. Yeah, I'm fascinated by this whole thing. I mean, my my youngest is graduating high school next next week. Okay, so from where? From uh, Highland High School in Gobert. Okay. so you know that'll be the last exposure that i have to you know the high school system specifically now the college system has its problems too my son's at arizona state and you know he just took an economics class all online during this past semester because of covid and it about killed him right i mean if he didn't have a dad who understood economics at a basic level he there's no way he would have passed that class And part of it's just the way that the whole thing, you know, is set up. And so I'm fascinated to watch this. I know Landon with one-year-old twins is is probably figuring out a way to get you in touch with the school district that his kids are going to go to, to make sure that they have their best foot forward, because I I think it really is a way to revolutionize the way that our kids learn. And I just, I look back and I wish that my kids had that opportunity because I have two kids, a boy and a girl. And they are night and day difference in the way that they learn. They're both very, very smart, do well academically, but they both learn very differently. And if they had had these opportunities, I think that they could have thrived that much more in high school.
2: Yeah, for sure. And we deal with it, too. And, you know, it took us a while as parents, too, to figure out Arizona is different. (laughs) (laughs) The, the, The environment is just very, very different. We, you know, I came from the Midwest, you know, growing up Chicago and then living in Ohio for so long. It was it was you figure out what school district you want to be in and you go buy a house in that district. And so that's what we did moving here, you know, like a week before school started in July. And then we're like, wait a second, (laughs) all the kids in our neighborhood all go to different schools. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we did the same thing. Yeah, it's crazy. So let's back up a little bit. Let's talk about entrepreneurship in general, right? So you said you knew early on that you wanted to get into entrepreneurship. You talked a little bit about the Michael Jordan documentary as your foray into, uh, you know, entrepreneurship, but let's just kind of get your feelings on entrepreneurship as a whole. And the ability that it has to, to change the world. Yeah. I, I've
2: been kind of using this phrase. I'm a mission-based entrepreneur because I do believe that entrepreneurship is, is the most effective way to actually make change in the world. Like it, it mm-hmm. you can go kind of the political route, you know, but at the end of the day, this is like free will. I mean, people are making their choices of, of what matters to them based on mm-hmm. on their purchasing choices. And So I am a huge proponent for it. Like I, you know, and and I have some other business ventures too because to me, like the things that I care about are, are education and community. So being able to like have businesses that actually can make an impact in the world as well as, you know, an environment where financially my employees and our team can do well as well as myself, like there's no better system than that. So it, there, there's definitely an aspect where you know, like these are, the changes happen. You look at what's happened in our lifetime; it's amazing. And if you didn't have an environment where where you had that kind of free you know, that free will entrepreneurship, I don't know what happens.
1: Yeah, I, I've talked about it a little bit, and I know I know Ryan's got a comment here, so I'm gonna let Ryan jump in. But I've talked about it a little bit on this show, and I talk about it all the time with my kids and other people that you know, my life literally changed in ninth grade when I took an elective class called entrepreneurship and the stock market, right? I was convinced that law school was where I was headed. I wanted to be in the courtroom. I wanted to be defending criminals or, you know, prosecuting them. I wasn't sure which, which, but that's what I envisioned as my life until I took that entrepreneurship and stock market class. And I, it just, it truly does have the ability to change the world. And when this, when COVID started and we were just getting started with this radio program, I don't know how many times I said on the, on the program that I knew no matter what, that the entrepreneurs in our country were going to lead us out of this. It's not going to be the big businesses. It's not going to be the politicians. It's going to be the entrepreneurs in our country that will lead us out of this. And we're seeing it today. Businesses are thriving, other businesses are starting, they're they're changing the way that they do business overall. You got restaurants that are starting that will never have in person seating, right? They've got the community kitchens and it's only delivery. You know, they're they've figured out a way to make it work and use what just happened to our whole world and and figure out a way to have an impact on the rest of the world.
2: Yeah. I I tell the story and it's kind of it sounds weird. So stick with me on the story, but like (laughs) The month after COVID hit was my favorite month of my career. It was, like we were already remote because we already have people, we work around the country, either from home or in co-working locations, schools were closed, so all of a sudden everyone that we can work, like our work just stopped. So we used that time and we said, all right, what are some other revenue streams we can come up with? And so my whole team, we just did brainstorming on it and we figured out there were eight different tracks that we were going to explore. And for the next couple months, we just had one person took the lead on each one of those eight and had to come up with their own business plan and and do that. It was so much fun. Like no other time in our career are we going to be able to do something like that. And from that, you know, there's, you know, most of them failed. Most of them we killed like, right, you know, within 30 days, but there's still a couple of them that we're working on. And that's pretty cool. I mean, it was, it was, it definitely was great for our team to kind of be thinking out of the box like that. But to your point, like that's how problems are
3: going to get solved. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt about it. Kevin, I know one of the things and I don't know if it was born out of that process, but would love to hear a little bit more about what you're doing to help school leaders. I mean, as part of that mission, you've really taken the bull by the horns to, to provide, you know, some peer group and some opportunities for them in leadership did that did that come at that same start and tell us more about what you're what you're doing with that and what impact uh you're seeing because the mission i mean that is incredibly powerful and and just the tendrils of that throughout society um wow yeah well thanks for bringing that up because that is one of the
2: things it it, it came from that and it was literally this one idea and i'm like guys i'm like this is a great idea that's going to have a huge impact and we're like, do we want to take this on? <laughs> <laughs> and we really debated it for a while. And finally, I'm like, I, I kind of said, I'm like, I can't, we can't do it right now. We can't take this on. This is, this is, this is, you know, that 10 million students I want to impact. This is the way we're going to do it, but we can't do it right now. Like, it's just not the right time. Um, but throughout the year, um, we actually did kind of progress that idea and work on it and in January we launched this organization called education leaders organization so it's called ELO and it's just ed-leaders.org and the whole idea is us as entrepreneurs and in other industries we've always had kind of peer groups that really helped us um, kind of work through the most difficult kind of good things and bad things in our life um So I've been part of one of them called Entrepreneur's Organization for about 10 years. Within that, there's a foundation where it allows leaders to have that outlet for the top five and bottom 5% of their lives. Being able to have that confidential space that you can't talk to, you may not be able to talk to your spouse or your employees or your friends about is really important. And there's really nothing like that in the education space. And this year in particular, we had kind of highlighted that the decision just like the basic decision of like should schools open or not was pushed down from the federal level from the states down to the local level that literally our superintendents and our principals were like they were the ones that had to decide if the local their local economy was basically open or not because if kids were not in school parents can't go to work you know so it, it really was like a big driver and we're and i saw it over and over again that They were not equipped. They did not have an outlet for this. Um, So when we launched this in January and started saying like, hey, this is your chance to kind of surround yourself with other people and talk about those confidential things, uh, that's really at the core of what this organization is all about because it's already an extremely high turnover position. Um, Principals typically turn over every two to three years. Superintendents turn over every four to five years. And it is a very difficult position to to fill with somebody who's actually qualified so if we can find ways to support them to have their outlets so that they actually stay longer and get better at their jobs that's going to be better for for everyone involved so um so the good and the bad is we've had like a really good (laughs) positive comment the bad is like almost everyone in there is wants to quit their job right now so it's a it's a it's a leadership crisis right now in education is that we can't let these good leaders just walk away because there's just not a pipeline of those ready to step in. So that's kind of our, our current mission right now is that we, this ELL organization is really meant to provide support for them and allow them to become the best leaders that they can be
3: and and i have to imagine that covid's only made that harder and and more likely to turn over right i mean yeah, for the sure the challenges are even magnified exponentially today yeah 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 i mean it is um yeah
2: it's scary the numbers of of how many are either planning to resign or just move into a different role locally i mean i can cite a number of like locally how many of our school leaders have either resigned or are planning to resign or retire here this summer and that's an issue. Um, some of them, you know, maybe they do need to retire and move on, but if we don't provide a support system for the new leaders coming in, we're just going to keep repeating, repeating those mistakes.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, the, <clears throat> just the whole premise, I, I, I agree with I'm, I'm part of a Vistage group here locally and it's, It's exactly the way that you explained it, right? I mean, being able to have that, those types of confidential conversations with other business owners who are going through some of the same things that you're going through. Um, You know, my, my wife she's, she's had to bear the brunt of my entrepreneurship for 25 years. Right. And, and, and it really is the brunt, you know, in, in a lot of ways. And, and my wife doesn't have a business bone in her body. I mean, she'll, she'll be the first to tell you that she doesn't understand business, doesn't care to understand business, gets bored by conversations with me. And so having somebody, you know, this group of, of other business owners, like-minded business owners that I can have conversations with, it's truly beneficial. And, and we even had – we had a member leave our Vistage group last year because she's the head of a nonprofit and donations were down. The budget had to have a cut and so she, she had to leave the Vistage group. And she called me out of the blue yesterday and said, hey, I, I've got this thing that I'm looking at. I, I'm hoping to have kind of a mini Vistage conversation with you and just ha- have you help me make this decision or give you – you know give me your feedback. And that's powerful. Not everybody has that right and business owners don't have it teachers necessarily you know don't necessarily have it and i've watched our school district and what they've had to deal with with this school reopening masks or no masks and you know they're they're doing the best that they can but then you've got no matter what decision they make half of the parents are just you know out there with pitchforks going after them about exactly. all the you know the decisions that they made so it it's a really tough position to be in
2: yeah, it is. Yeah, and and at the core of that too is is a principle that, and principle, ending in le, not yeah. <laughs> not al like like school principal. is that the training that we provide in this elo, it's based on on training them how to speak from experience versus advice giving, and that alone like changes everything. So like that, it it's taken me years to like really kind of embrace it and learn how to do that, but being able to speak from experience when you're in those, um, because at the end of the day, every single one of those leaders has to make the decision for themselves, and they need to be in an environment where they can hear other people's experiences and make the right choice for them. Because otherwise, you know, when you get into just advice giving, and I think that's where where a lot of these is everyone wants to give the advice and give their opinion of how to do it. But when you do that, it really kind of falls apart in two different – it falls apart from the advice giver because – Now, if you come to me with that same issue two months down the road, be like, I told you what to do. Why didn't you just listen to me? I would have solved your problem two months ago. So it breaks it down that way. And then it breaks it down the other way too, where if if somebody's just giving me advice, the only option I have is either take the advice or not take the advice. And, you know, if I take it, now I can go back to be like, dude you told me what to do and it and it totally blew up in my face so so, so really that's we trained up with one where we partnered up with one of the top uh, training agencies that goes through and teaches this methodology of like how to go through and speak from experience and how to run these meetings so they don't they don't fall apart yeah. because it's really it, it can be when you're talking about confidential things it's it's really sensitive to make sure that that group dynamic yeah works out
1: yeah, it, it can be a very powerful thing for all all people involved, right? I mean, you, you come away learning so much, but you also come away having a drop in your stress level or, you know, just feeling like you're you're going it alone, right? I mean, I, I've been in this Vistage group for maybe almost two years now, and it's rare to come out of a, a monthly Vistage meeting without having somebody... Cry at some point <laughs> during the meeting, right? And, and I, you know, it, it's funny, but at the same time, it's like it's because people are comfortable enough with the other members in the group and they're able to be vulnerable right. with what's going on, right? And sometimes it's family and personal issues that they're emotional about, and sometimes it's business issues that they're emotional about. But, you know, y- y- we get to see firsthand, just like the teachers in your group would see it, that business owners. Our people too, right? I mean, the media tries to portray us as, you know, greedy, hungry, you know, power hungry people that that don't care about our employees. But the reality is 99.9% of all business owners really truly care about their employees, their community, charitable endeavors in their area. And, and it just gives an opportunity to, to really just spend some time with like-minded people and, and better everybody together.
2: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Vistage is a good group, too. That's actually how we learned about EO <laughs> at the time was, yeah, we I'm like, man, I'm like my business partner uh, when we were involved, um, and we're like, we just need to be other around other business owners that have gone through these same issues. And so we stumbled across Vistage, and then a guy at Vistage, he goes... What we need to do is one of you needs to join Vistage and one of you needs to join EO. And we're like, what's this EO? <laughs> and so that was that was how we got turned on to that. No, but it is, it is really important to
3: have kind of that that outlet. Yeah. So speaking of, of the village in that broader entrepreneurial community, you obviously have unique insights into just the educational system in this country in general, but there are there's there's probably a number of folks out there who share your same intent, your same passion to really improve education. And there's probably a lot of opportunities, as you mentioned, COVID ripping the Band-Aid off of a... Of a an industry rooted in, in tradition what what advice would you give based on your learnings to other people out there and where is that impact that again that village of entrepreneurs can come together to help improve the education system i mean you're one company doing a great job but what what help or what other you know aspects do you see where there's opportunities to to better the education system yeah i, I think there's a lot I, I think at the end of the day like i've been really vocal of saying that it,
2: this is an adult problem. This is not a school problem. Like to to improve the schools in our country, everyone plays a role. And, you know, somebody made the analogy like it's called the school system for a reason. It, it really is. It's like intertwined how much it all matters. And, you know, for a while I was on this rampage of like, and it's all the college's fault. Like, you know, if the colleges, you know, like don't kind of dictate what they what they need for students to get in then the K-12 system could actually kind of free up to be like, all right, well, how do we actually prepare our students for life? And I still believe that to a certain degree that there's an aspect of that. Um, I think there's some things falling down. Like right now, I think COVID has kind of hurt the college experience and that market of, you know, of like, what are we really paying all that money for? Because at the end of the day, almost every K-12 system, whether they like explicitly say it or not, the best judge of their success is either, how many of our kids got into college or did our kids get into a better college mm-hmm. like those are kind of the the only measures that we really kind of allow a society to give our K12 system and I, I think some of that's falling down i'm trying to be more and more vocal about that to say like that is not the purpose of this if we are just pushing for college we're failing and if we're putting the pressure on the K12 system that that is your how you Way whether you're a good schooler or not then we're the ones that are failing so i've been very vocal of saying as parents as business leaders we really have to de-emphasize how much college is the measurement and i know it's hard it's a hard one because of what's i mean you said you have one graduating college. what's the question that that everyone asks you
1: where are you going to school yeah, what are what, you going to study? Yeah, what's yeah. the next thing?
2: And, you know, when there's ego wrapped up in that from the parent's perspective of, you know, like, oh, what, where do they go to? And, and I get it. I mean, I'm a parent. Like, I'm, like, trying to fight it. Like, I logically know this, but my oldest is 13, and I'm, like, trying to fight this of, like, man, how much do I push him to get into college versus how much do I prepare him to just be, like, a good person and to be successful in life? And a lot of times like those two are opposing each other because it really hurts a lot of parent relationship with kids of if you're just kind of battling for grades and trying to get them in college. So I, I think, you know, at the parent level, we really need to assess like how much we value college. And I'm not saying that colleges don't have value. I think if you, there is There is value. I mean, especially if you're going into something that requires an advanced degree. But it's encouraging to see even like little things that are happening here in Arizona, like the community colleges are now being opened up to offer four-year degrees. Um, those are great options. Even, you know, the two-year degree is a great option for not every kid is ready. And they, they honestly probably should not be going and spending, you know, 20000 $50,000 a year in college, but until that breaks down the unfair pressure that we as parents and the society are putting into the K-12 system, that's got to break. So this conversation needs to happen. Now I also kind of get into the business leaders, which I think, you know, is the, you know, the main audience of the show is like, how often are we putting on a job application that you require a four year degree? Yep. I mean, have you ever hired anyone without a four year degree?
1: Uh, yes. Yes, I have many people actually. Yeah. yeah, but it. I mean, yeah, in my financial planning company and other organizations that I that I own or have owned. Yeah, yeah.
2: And, and I know we were, we were that way. I mean, Ryan. I mean, how much does it? How much does it matter? I guess if you had somebody on your staff that was really good at what they did, you, would
3: you care if they have a four year degree? It, I think it's more the external stigma. Yeah, right. I don't know that we'd care, but does does somebody judging from the outside care? And I think that's just you know part of that societal issue. Yeah, it, it really hit me. There was a podcast I was listening to, um, revisionist history with
2: Malcolm Gladwell. If you haven't, have you listened to that one?
1: It's, I, I haven't, it's, but I know Malcolm Gladwell. It, it's a great
2: one. But there was one where where um, he was talking. He was looking at law degrees and trying to figure out who were the best lawyers. It started out just um, one of the Supreme Court justices was speaking and talking about. He was. Actually, speaking to one of the lower grade like law schools, it wasn't one of the top ones, and saying like like at the end of the day, we get so many resumes. The only thing we can do is we can pick, so we just pick from the top one. And then like you can hear him like talk like off the cuff. He goes, "But actually, our best one went to Ohio State University, <laughs> which he was knocking, and uh, from Ohio. Like that was kind of funny. And they talked about like how he was their best person that he he'd ever worked with and and a lot of it and they said, "Well, why is he so good?" And he's like, "Oh, he just wear like his detail was so good. But then when you look at the bar exam and how to become like how to get into it, it's all about speed. And like so we're we're totally misaligning everything on here yeah. and if, and if we you know and I feel like we have an opportunity right now where we're in more of like a freelance society that can build up that you can just be based on your merits versus, like, what's your degree? Like, do you, did you did you pay all the money to get that type, you know, that get that degree? Or, you know, or does it really mean something? And so my challenge is any hiring manager, any business owners, really think about instead of just copying and pasting that job description and posting it out there, do they really need a four-year degree? Because there's some really good people out there that are probably just as capable or more capable that, you know, are, are we just putting a $100,000 gate? on any of these jobs because they haven't done that. And so those are the pieces that I feel like until we can start having those discussions, we're, we're locking the K-12 system into, man, we just have to focus on getting our kids into,
1: into college or a better college. Yeah. I feel like the four of us could get together once a month and decide on a new thing in the K-12 system <laughs> that we're going to attack and fix, right? And just start to build these different organizations to fix them. But, you know, the, this whole conversation reminds me actually of the first guest that we ever had on this program, uh, father and son, actually, but the son's the one who, who wrote the book. So Josh and Joel Zolan of Windy City Equipment. So they do restaurant equipment and repair here locally. But Josh wrote a book called Blue is the New White, mm-hmm. right? And his mission—and he goes out and speaks to, to high schools and, and you know, all over the country and different—any I- chance he gets to speak, he'll get out there and, and talk about how we've we've really pushed so hard on everybody has to go to college to be successful in life that now we have a real shortage of people who are willing to go into the trades, mm-hmm. right? And he just talks about how you can have a great, you can have a great life, you can make a great living in the trades. There shouldn't be this pressure to go to college, but you can choose to go and, and learn a trade. And I think even the high school system or the K through twelve system, and, and I know they do this in Europe. I lived in Europe for a few years, where they kind of early on kind of put you on a path based on testing that they do and questioning you about what's important to you, what's interesting to you. To kind of put you on this path towards a career. Now, I think that's kind of a a little bit militant, but at the same time, we've got to understand that it's not just about everybody going to college. There are some people who are really, really good craftsmen or really good mechanics or really good, you know, whatever that should be pushed that direction rather than getting a college degree and being in a career that they're miserable in.
2: Yeah. I 100% agree with that, but I'm going to add on to it too. Yeah, so, please. well, one story in there is one of my friends from the CEO group. He has a plumbing company, and you know, and it's really successful. But you know, like a lot of people, he just there's not a lot of not a labor options right now. So he created what he calls Brewer University, where he's going into high schools and trying to teach them the craft of of doing that. And he finds that the kids love it. It's the yeah. parents that are the ones who are like, no, you're not going to that. Yeah. you're going to college. so the kid's
1: not going to be a plumber. yeah yeah
2: like I don't want yeah, I don't, wa- yeah, don't want to do that. but in the meantime he's he's paying like 70 80 grand for that first year, you know like with the high school you know like right out of high school. That's a really good option. doesn't yeah. mean like the kid may want to do something else and may want to go to college down the road, but the, the fact that we're forcing that um, and then the other but the other point in there is I don't think that we're just talking about blue collar. I feel like that's typically where the discussion is. It's like we need more labors and blue-collar work. This is white-collar, too. I mean, yeah. think of, like, every one of these successful tech companies. Like, most of them, they didn't finish their college degree. You know, yeah. like, like, we're in a society right now where your work does matter and people can view your work, and it doesn't require a four-year degree. So I, I'm not trying to just, like, blanket not colleges on here there there's a lot of good that that comes from it um but it it doesn't need to be the only option right now we're making it the only option the only thing that matters for the k-12
3: system so that's they're forced into it
1: yeah definitely
3: big takeaway for me from that that whole piece of what you were saying was that the, the issues we're having in our school system is an adult problem it is It is. I mean, there
2: are people in education that are good people who understand this. They know this. They know they want to change it, but they are so locked into the standardized testing and they don't have a voice to get the word out. Mm -hmm. And I get it. You know, like they, you know, anything that kind of comes from school is usually kind of viewed as complaining um, that, that comes from it, from teachers or from anywhere in there. But there are people that genuinely get it they want to make an impact and the system that
3: we're putting them in doesn't allow them to do what they do best. So you, you have obviously a very unique uh, view into the classroom just because of what you do every day. I mean, what, what does the classroom look like in the next three to five years? I mean, I'm I'm sure you have a little bit of a leading, leading indicator looking into that, but what, I mean, you know, like you, I have kids that are still, you know, not in high school and what, what does that environment look like going forward?
2: Yeah, I, I get careful when I talk on this because I, I was walking with my wife earlier and I'm like, it's so lacking in Arizona right now. And I, in one, speak very highly about Arizona education. When I first came here, I kept hearing we're 49th out of 50th. We're and I'm like, well, what do you mean we're 49th out of 50th? And at the end of the day, we're 49th out of 50th in funding per student. But if you looked at results, which, again, I don't want to put too much weight on kind of those standardized tests, but we're we're right in the middle of the pack. I mean, depending on what you looked at, we are, you know, in the low to mid-20s. So in a lot of ways, it's a huge success story. We should be, like, amazed and, like, showing off the success that we're doing in Arizona. Now, to the downside of it, because we're in kind of this open enrollment state where there is so much choice on there, again, it's the parents. For some reason, the the predominant style that kind of took the lead here was this classical education. And I understand the irony. My kid goes to one of them, Ryan, one, one of your kids goes there too. But I really wish there would be some that have gone into more of what's considered like a project-based learning curriculum. There, up until recently, were actually laws against schools to actually kind of combine curriculums or combine subjects into things where you can have like a longer class period where you really dig dive deep into like be like produce a video about, um, about how, um, Egyptians overcame this issue. Like, like how do you bring in like math, history, science, technology all into like one project that students get engaged in. And there's not those types of offerings in Arizona and there are in other states. Like there are some other states that are doing, these more like deep dive project-based type of curriculum where it's less focused to, to you know like memorizing facts and more about problem solving, which is at the end of the day what, what our kids need right now. They need to know how to solve problems. I mean, all we're doing is leaving more and more problems <laughs> for them. So we need to teach them how to solve it. We don't need to teach them how to memorize things that we can just pick up our phone and say, hey, Siri, who was a president in 1912, so that's what I would love to see happen. And, you know, and, and it is happening in other parts of the country. I think there's some of that happening in Arizona, but I hope, I wish there would be more of that. The good thing about is is we're in an environment where somebody can actually create a school like that. And that's why I kind of warned my my wife i'm like i need to be careful because i don't want to start school (laughs) (laughs) but i really hope i can encourage someone else maybe i can like be part of (laughs) of that because it is desperately needed i think those are the skill sets that i think our kids need and um and i think there would be a a a strong demand for a school like that in arizona to to pop up and and come about so I, i feel like the environment's there Somebody listening wants to start it out or get involved. <laughs> Just get them, <laughs> in yellow, them. get them in your yellow yeah, exactly. we'll get them in your yellow group. they will be
1: fine in that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's funny. I mean, we're we're pushing up against the end here and I think we've covered some really important things, but probably the biggest thing that I'll take away from this is that the school system issues is an adult issue. And I think that, that could actually be said about pretty much everything right i mean <laughs> everything that we have going on in our world that is that is wrong it's it's an adult driven issue right yeah. i mean if we have racism or economic disparity or any of those kinds of things that are real problems in our society today it's adult driven like our kids don't are not born racist right i mean landon's got one year old twins his kids are not racist I mean, I think that the point is we just have to take more responsibility for where we are today and understand, and And this is, you know, me getting out of my soapbox a little bit, but the reality is these problems, all problems in society can be solved in our own homes. If every home was focused on the problems in our world and and solving them and working together as a family or as, you know, all brothers and sisters of this large human race that we're a part of, we we could solve the problems. It's just that people have these beliefs and people argue and push back and and are more worried about being right than solving the problems. And it's just, it's frustrating to see in every area of our world that that's that's really what's going on. Yeah,
2: for sure. And and I think though the the kids
1: can, uh, they're amazing.
2: Like if we let them try to solve problems and and give them the environment to do that so it, it is it's where it's a tough one because if you ask and we do this sometimes or we'll go in and be like like design design your classroom how you would want those are some of the best projects yeah you know and, and when they design it they know they can do it so we need to like we need to fight to give them the freedom to do that because yeah. kids would do it i, I mean like what well, we're 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 recording here on kind of like these co-working locations. Our school should look like this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Well, I, for one, (laughs) have enjoyed the conversation, but Landon, I'm going to let you close it out.
4: Yeah. Yeah. No, this has been, this has been, uh, this has been an incredible conversation. Very much appreciated. Uh, I I guess I have a a question kind of, and then I've got a, just a closing thought. If any of you guys want to, you know, speak to it. Yeah, the first question is Kevin. If we're not sending our kids to college, how are they going to learn how to do keg stands? That's my first <laughs> question. No, but 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 seriously though, um, I've been I've been introduced to a couple of organizations over the last maybe I don't know two or three years. One of them was an organization that uh, essentially teaches grade school kids how to think. About and approach money in ways that they've never been exposed to before. And it's just an incredible program. The other program that I've been more directly involved in, and I've done a bunch of volunteer work for her, but she's an incredible woman out of Las Vegas. And she works with kids in underprivileged areas. And she essentially, it's an after school program, and she essentially helps these kids. Juniors and seniors primarily get ready to go to school to go to college. It's not just the the educational component or the financial component. It is the, you know, the getting out into the world and being a good human being component, and and understanding that when you when you meet a potential employer for the first time, when you shake their hand, that you need to look at them in the eyes and make that. Connection, Like those are the skills that she is teaching these kids. And it's just, it's an, it's also an incredible program. But my, my question that I pose is, you talked about not wanting to start a school, but having these great ideas around starting the school, but that hopefully, you know, maybe somebody else can kind of, you know, run with it and, and you can be in a, you know, consultant or something. But like, how do we figure out how to tie in all these other great organizations and services and things that kids need to be thinking about and learning about and how do we tie them in so that they can experience that in, you know, a traditional school setting, you know, yeah. so I don't know if any of you guys have any questions. Yeah, for sure. That.
2: And that's a good point. And I think a lot of us kind of in the business world too, kind of to your point, Ryan, too, it's like a unique perspective is, is, they don't want to hear it from us. <laughs> they don't want to. They, they don't want to hear us come in and be like you're doing it all wrong. Bottom line is, I, I, my overall experience is that they know what they would want to do. Like these are, if we allow our teachers to actually teach and our principals to actually do that without you know like kind of just putting these handcuffs on them, they know that you know like they can teach them those things. It's not like they don't want to be teaching that. It, it's just flat out the system we're creating for them right now is. Mm-hmm it's, it's focused on just putting out that result of those standardized tests and getting them into college and and trying to meet these benchmarks. So I I think the best thing we can do is to kind of fight back for them and be like, why are we still doing this? Like, why are we still doing this?
4: Right. Well, Kevin, that was, a uh, just a really interesting, cool conversation. I, I don't know that I've, uh, I've had one like this before. So um, thank you very much for all your insights and just everything you've shared with us. Uh, if people want to track you down, Kevin, and and have a conversation with you or just learn more about what you guys are doing, um, how do they, how do they find you?
2: Yeah, probably LinkedIn is probably the best way to, to start. Just go Kevin Stoller on LinkedIn, but our, uh, our company is K12, K-A-Y dash dot com. And if, and if you are kind of interested in, um, helping out kind of these educators. If you go to that edleaders.org, um, there's a nomination form as well. So to to nominate some of these other leaders, because uh, I really think that's one of the best things we can do is just provide the support that they need right now.
4: Fantastic. Well, I'll just leave with, you know, let, let's, let's, let's put it out there to challenge all of our, uh, our local business leaders and and people that uh, are trying to make an impact in the communities that we live in to, to, Try to look at some of these things we've talked about through a different lens, and let's 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 start it at the top in the business community, and uh, and allow it to, to trickle down into the other areas that uh, are affected. So I, I love that that thought, and uh, just thank you, Ryan, for for joining and inviting Kevin on. And Kevin, uh, thank you very much for your time and all your insights today. Much appreciated.
2: Thank you, guys. Really appreciate. It.
0: You've been listening to Tycoons of Small Biz, proudly hosted by Austin Peterson and Landon Mance. Austin and Landon are comprehensive financial planning professionals, specializing in financial, estate, and succession planning for small business owners. Austin and Landon have offices in Scottsdale, Arizona, and Las Vegas, Nevada, and represent clients in 14 states throughout the country. Join Austin, Landon, and the Featured Tycoons live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. right here on Business Radio X and your favorite podcast platform.